It's good to see all of you this morning. Please be joining me in your Bibles in John chapter 3, uh, verse 31 is where we'll start here in just a moment. I don't know if, if Brady was conscious of it or not when he was prepping to lead us to Revelation 5 this morning, uh, that our sermon would be titled, Is He Worthy? Uh, but if that was not intentional on his part, it doubtless was on the part of the Lord. Uh, that question of the worthiness of Jesus very rightly brings our mind to Revelation chapter 5, uh, where that, that question is put, who is worthy? Uh, we're going to see a lot in our text this week and next week about the worthiness of our Lord. What Revelation 5 adds to that is the utter hopelessness if he is not worthy, the fact that there is no one else worthy. And we're not going to go to Revelation 5 this morning, so I was just very thankful that, uh, that we began this morning by reading that passage. Uh, when the bulletin was printed, the intention was to go all the way through the end of chapter 3 this morning. And yesterday, I decided that there was no way that we would be able to do that well, and so we will go as far as verse 33. So this is part 1 of verses 31 to 36. We'll come back to this text next week and finish. Uh, and what we're about to find as we read this is that really this, this is a direct continuing from what we heard last week from John the Baptist. If you were here, you remember, last week was John the Baptist interacting with his disciples. As they are jealous of Jesus' ministry and they bring that to John the Baptist and he responds to them with this, with this very uh, proper perspective of humility and a proper God-given sense of his lot in life, his place that God has given him. Uh, that statement ends in verse 30, and now in verse 31, it's like the, the writer, the Apostle John, has paused the narrative in order to take the significance of what John the Baptist just said and displayed, to take that significance and reflect on it directly. That's what we have in verses 31 to 36. Uh, you can tell that the gospel writer expected the Baptist's posture that we saw last week to be impactful to us. It's just not normal, natural human behavior to do what John the Baptist just did. Uh, we saw something otherworldly on display. How, how otherworldly is it for someone to say, I mean really say, I exist to serve at the behest of another, uh, of, of one who has total right to direct my life, to set my lot in life as he sees fit for his glory so that I could pour my life out for his glory and not for my own. Have you found that easy to say? That's an otherworldly sort of perspective that we heard last week, and the otherworldliness of it isn't lost on the author of this gospel. We have to remember the Apostle John is writing all of this after having seen how this story ends. He's writing from a spirit-indwelt, post-cross perspective. John the Baptist knew enough even at this moment in the narrative to be able to say, my joy is complete. Uh, seeing the world go out to Jesus Christ. And whatever John the Baptist knew in that moment, the Apostle John, as he's writing this, knows even more. 
So this morning, John, the Apostle John, answers the question, is Jesus really worthy of all of this? You should be able to guess what the answer is going to be. The answer is going to be yes, he's really worthy of all of this. Uh, And verses 31 to 36 give us three reasons that it is so. Three reasons that the answer is yes. Why is he worthy of increasing in your life and mine? in the way that John the Baptist just said about his. You remember how he ended that. Christ must increase. I must decrease. Why is he worthy of that in John the Baptist's life, in your life, in my life? Why should Jesus increase in our lives? And we're going to see three reasons for this. We'll see two of them this morning and then give next week to the third. What we're going to see is this. Let me preview this and then we'll stand and read the passage together. Verses 31 to 33, we're going to see he is worthy because he is utterly above all of this. He is utterly above all of creation. Verse 33 specifically, we're also going to see secondly, he is worthy of this because he is the purpose behind all of this. He is the purpose of God in creation. And we'll see next week a great deal and some profound things that John the Apostle says here about Christ as the inheritor of all of it, the inheritor of all of creation. I'll be reading verses 31 to 36 from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Spoken about our Lord Jesus Christ, John writes this, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I want us to begin by, uh, by rereading these first three verses as we see the first reason for Jesus' worthiness. Jesus is worthy because he is above all creation. Now, as I read these three verses, I want you to ask yourself, does this sound familiar? Have we heard John say something like this before? And you get bonus points if you can even figure out where he has already said this <laughs> in our study thus far. Uh, Verses 31 to 33 went like this. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Some of what we've just read is new, and there's a lot for us to think about. Some of it we can actually say comparatively little about. 
because this is the third time now that John has made statements about what he is bringing out here. And we've already spoken about some of this first point he brings up at some length in our weeks in the Gospel of John. Let me just remind you of some of these places. Uh, He's just said here that Jesus is able to speak of heavenly things, right? Compared to those who are of the earth who cannot speak of heavenly things. Where have we seen that before? Well, look at verses 11 and 12 of this chapter, chapter 3. Jesus said there to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? You hear the very same, some of the same point that the Apostle John is making there. On the notion that he brings up in these three verses of ours this morning of Many not receiving him, but some receiving him. We've seen that before, haven't we? Back in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, he opens in his prologue like this. He says in verse 11, about our Lord, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, doesn't that sound just like our verses this morning? But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And what we've seen in those places and what we need to remember again this morning is that the general idea John is bringing us to is that Jesus is not from here. There is something of the origin of our Lord that is fundamentally unique and different. He is not, here's how it puts it in our text, he is not of the creation. He is not of the earth is how he puts it in verse 31. Now, we've seen a lot so far about the world in our study of John's gospel. When he speaks of the world, we've seen he's talking about the world and its systems as it stands in rebellion against God. In those places, he is using a different word than he uses here about the earth. Here, when he says in verse 31, he who is of the earth belongs to the earth, he's not talking about that same idea. He is using a word here that simply describes the physical earth. So we read in verse 31, anyone who is of the earth belongs to the earth. And that's not a statement about sinfulness. It's simply a statement about inevitable limitation. All they can speak of are earthy things. That's where they're from. That's what they're of. There's, there is an absolutely desperate limit that they cannot overcome in terms of what they're able to know and talk about. But he says Jesus is not of the earth in that way. Jesus comes from heaven. And since he is above all, he is superior to all. John reminds us of that here in the context of this question. Is he worthy of all of this? Is he worthy? If I decide to live my whole life, all right, think about this scenario. Let's say... I come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and I decide that I should live my whole life for the purpose of exalting him, Jesus Christ, at whatever expense to myself, to my chances for glory, etc. Let's say I do that. Have I done a foolish thing? When all's said and done, is that is that foolish? To live my life in that pursuit. Is he worthy of that? 
And the first answer we find here is, yes, he is worthy because he's just that much superior to me. And to anything that my life pursuit would be given to, apart from him, it's all earthy. He is above it all. Like I said, we can move somewhat quickly here, given what we've seen in past weeks about this. But we do need to notice something here. Since this is the third time this point has come up about the Lord Jesus, can you tell this is becoming a major theme of John's gospel? We saw it in John 1, 11 and 12. We saw it in John 3, 11 to 13 with Nicodemus. We see it here. It's going to keep coming up. Would you mind following me for just a moment while, uh, as we chase down a few more places in this gospel uh, where this idea is brought before us? I'm just going to read these, but you might be helped to see them with your eyes. Um, if you'd like to do that, you can go to John 6, 32 and 33. Here's what he says there. Truly, truly, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread. Verse 46 of the same chapter, chapter 6. Jesus says, Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. John 8, 21. This is quite a conversation. Speaking, Jesus is speaking. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Verse 42 of the same chapter, chapter 8. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. John 17, verse 3. Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's praying to his Father here. And he prays like this, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I am not of this world. I I had infinite glory with the Father before this world existed, and he has sent me to glorify him in this world, and I have. And now, Lord, glorify yourself through me again with that same presence that we shared before this world existed. You can go back to our passage in chapter 3. The point here is simply this. Can you tell that Jesus made it quite an explicit part of his word to us in this gospel? And his message to his hearers 
during his earthly ministry. He made it an explicit part of what he was telling us, that he was not to be regarded as some good human wisdom teacher. Is not who we are dealing with. He says over and over and over again, I am not from here. I am above all of this. All of you, receive me if you want to receive life. Reject me if you want to reject life. This is a constant message that he is bringing. Do not confuse who I am and where I have come from. So, It's before us this morning, then. Let's not waste the chance to be reminded again about something that, let's face it, we can very easily take for granted so as to even overlook it altogether. We really do hold the testimony in our hands this morning concerning a person that God has sent from heaven. It's an odd thing for the modern world to hear us say, And we don't care one bit about what the modern world thinks about this. God has sent his son from heaven, a person who is not of this earth. And his testimony brings life or death consequences. That's a pretty good reason why he should increase in my life and in yours. He is worthy of that because he is above all of this, all of us. Secondly, this morning, what we see here, looking specifically at verse 33, the rest of our time this morning is in verse 33. Jesus is worthy to increase in your life because Jesus is the purpose for which God created any of this. We find in verse 33 a statement that is profound enough to be worthy of a point all by itself this morning. Look at verse 33 again. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. We've already remembered the parallel statement of this in John 1.12. What's parallel to these people who receive his testimony in John 1.12? What's parallel there in that verse is that uh, those are the people to whom it says God gave the right to become children of God. So we're talking about Uh, adoption into God's family here. But John says something a little bit different in verse 33 this morning. Notice in chapter 1, verse 12, what he was emphasizing was what God did for them. They believed, and he gave them the right to become children of God. But here he's emphasizing the significance of what these testimony receivers are doing. What is the significance of What what is happening when a sinner is confronted with the gospel, is given the grace to believe, and says, yes, I believe this testimony. And I want us to look at three pieces of this statement in verse 33. The receiving itself, the testimony that he's talking about, and then this setting a seal to God's truthfulness. First, we need to be sure we understand when he's talking about people receiving Jesus' testimony, we need to understand what kind of receiving he's talking about. We can speak of that in more than one way, receiving his testimony. He uses a particular verb and a particular verb form to describe this receiving, and that's actually important 
because it helps us to know what he's really getting at here. So receiving Jesus' testimony can be a way to describe our conversion, can't it? Just like in chapter 1, verse 12, the, the moment when God takes the blinders off of our eyes, allows us to see, and we receive his testimony in a saving way. We're given the grace to behold the truth of Christ, the beauty of Christ. Paul puts it beautifully in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Just remember how he describes conversion there. He says this, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, Genesis 1, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I mean, that is maybe the most beautiful and powerful way that the New Testament describes the moment of one's conversion. What's happening then? Here's what's happening. Just like there was darkness and God said, let there be light, and there was. In just that way, you've got a sinner, hopeless in himself or herself, darkness. And God says, let there be light. And the specific light that comes is a light that shines in our hearts, he says, to give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's the light to realize Jesus Christ is who he said he was in the Gospel of John. It's that light. That's a receiving of the testimony concerning Jesus Christ. But there's also... What we know to be true, there's the daily choice of receiving Jesus' testimony. We, we must choose, as Christians, to walk in the light of who Christ is. I am to believe his testimony every day. By his grace, I, I, I believed his testimony, the testimony concerning Christ yesterday. Praise God. What am I to do today? I am to believe the testimony concerning Jesus Christ. So there is a sense of receiving his testimony that describes our daily call to walk in faith. But here, we need to understand that John is very clearly writing about the first of those. He's writing about a particular reception of Jesus' testimony. So when he says, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, he's talking about the moment when a sinner hears the gospel, which breaks his heart, and believes that testimony which breaks the chains of bondage that he or she has been living in. Now, let's let's think about the testimony that's being received, and then we'll put all of this together. What is his testimony here that we are receiving? And now that we've seen what we saw a moment ago, the major theme running through John here, it should be easier for us. This is testimony, Jesus' testimony, regarding who he himself is. We've heard it in a number of places in John's gospel. The testimony that he has been sent by God to save. That he is the atoning, substitutionary sacrifice that will, in fact, save us. We're being told here to assent to the claims of Jesus concerning his person and his work and to trust on him completely. So here's the question in this morning. Well, what is it? that is happening in the life of a sinner when, by God's grace, he or she receives Jesus' testimony and is born again. What is it that's happening? What's the significance of that moment of conversion? And all of this leads us to the third statement in verse 33 about setting a seal. 
John says that what that person is doing, when they're confronted with the testimony concerning Jesus Christ and they believe that testimony, is that they are setting their seal to the fact of God's truthfulness. This is an image that we simply must understand. Uh, I would suggest to you that it is the opposite of the image that we see in 1 John chapter 5. I think it's really helpful to know a thing by seeing its opposite. And that's what we find there. Flip over for just a moment to 1 John 5, verses 9 and 10. It's just two verses. I'll read these, but especially I'm, I'm reading this because of what's said in verse 10. 1 John 5, 9 and 10, this is what this same writer says in that context. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And you need to notice there that he's not speaking of God's testimony in general ways. He keeps saying that he's speaking about God's testimony concerning his son. Do you notice that emphasis? And do you notice that in verse 10, to believe in the son of God is equated with believing God. So that whoever does not believe in that testimony concerning God, it says, has made him a liar. Now I hope that's plain to us. It's not saying it's actually made God into a liar. It is saying that person has, by their disbelief in the testimony concerning his son, they have made God out to be a liar. That's what they have done by rejecting this particular testimony. Our statement in John 3.33 seems like the positive alternative to that. If we do not believe the testimony that God has borne concerning his son, we've made God a liar. It's speaking in reference of something of a finality here. We have seen all that God is going to show us regarding himself and his character. And we have given a final verdict then in 1 John. God is a liar. Verse 33 here is the contrast to that. If we receive Jesus' testimony concerning his person and work, if we receive that, then we have set our seal to the truthfulness of God. I find this a very striking statement. Now, this is saying something that points to the, the utter uniqueness and finality. Finality is the operative word here. The finality of God's self-revelation in the person of his son. Follow me here with a line of thinking. Why have we been created in the first place? Why did God choose to create? Our confessions tell us, uh, helpfully, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Oh, we are, Genesis 1, we are image of God, aren't we? Created by God for the purpose of displaying his glories, revealing who he is, in other words. It's the whole purpose of God in our creation. And everything that God has done to reveal himself has served that same end. 
so that people may know God by seeing his works, hearing his promises, etc., and responding to them by giving him glory. Anyone who has ever been saved, before or after the cross, has been saved by believing God when he makes promises. And there have been promises concerning God's saving people all throughout the Old Testament, haven't there been? There, they were pictures, they were foreshadowings, images of what God was going to do in Christ. So Abraham believed a promise of God by looking to the stars and hearing God's statement about his offspring. He believed God. And God's word says it was credited to him as righteousness. Israelites trusted God to provide for their sins as they looked at and through the sacrificial animals. And those animals pointed ahead, didn't they? What did they point ahead to? Well, they pointed ahead to the sacrifice that God was going to make on behalf of sinners once for all. So what does Jesus point ahead to? The answer is that Jesus points ahead to nothing. He's pointing ahead to nothing. He is it. He's it. He is the tada moment of God's display of his character, his reliability, his truthfulness. So that, verse 33, when we believe God's testimony concerning his son, here's what we're doing. We are setting our seal to the reality of God's truthfulness. In the same way as anyone who refuses the testimony God has given concerning his son is taking all the evidence God will ever give and rendering the verdict, liar. There is nothing else to atone for that sin because the tada moment is here. God has rested his case in the vindication and display of his glory and righteousness. Everything God has done in creation, he has done toward the purpose of glorifying himself. And Jesus is the end all of that entire process. So I ask you, is he worthy to increase in your life? When we are faced with choices, and these are the kinds of choices we're faced with every day, between our temporal priorities, some of which are, are well and good, uh, simply natural priorities, some of which are downright sinful. When we're faced with choices between our temporal priorities and the obedience that puts on display Jesus' value in my life, the question here is, does the worth of Jesus warrant that he ought to increase in my life? When I desire, when I prioritize a thing and I'm willing to sin in order to achieve it, or I intend to sin if I fail to achieve it, what I have just said is that that thing is more worthy than my Savior is. I've made a judgment value about worth. And what we see in verse 33 is that I am utterly, cosmically mistaken in those moments. 
each and every time, mistaken to a degree that is insanity. Sin is the presence of insanity in my life priorities. I am most certainly no prophet, uh, but there is something regarding the future that I am so sure of, uh, the future of each and every one of us, that I would be willing to state it in form of a promise. So here we go. I promise you that in the day that we see our King enthroned in divine glory, directing the universe by the power of his will, defeating our greatest enemy with a spoken word, when we see that one day, it will seem to us incomprehensible that there had ever been a moment in which we decided it was good or wise or justifiable to value something else more than we valued that man's opinion, preference, command. It will seem unimaginable to us on that day. And yet how different is this day compared to that day? a day in which such a concept can actually seem perfectly reasonable to me. We can actually succeed in thinking that we might just understand our situation a little better than he does, or that he didn't quite take my unique circumstances into mind when he gave that commandment. And so I can ignore that one and not expect to suffer as a result. It's simply amazing, our capacity. And what John tells us this morning is simply fact. Jesus is above all. Jesus is the exhibit of God's truthfulness that all the other exhibits were simply preparing us for. If God has proven true regarding his willingness and his ability to ransom sinners to himself while remaining just, to cause a virgin to conceive and to clothe divinity in true humanity? If he has proven true in those promises, well, then everything he has said is true. What he has said about your finances is true, done. What he has said about what it means that you are a husband or what it means that you are a wife is true, done. What he has said about his purposes for marriage, his purposes for human sexuality, his purposes for human government, his purposes for suffering. His purposes at Christ's second coming. All of it is true, done. Our place before his revelation of truth is not the place of evaluator, is it? It is the place of humble and grateful recipient. And so we are challenged this morning by our Lord himself through his word to ask ourselves, where have I said by my life that God might not have been telling the truth? That God might not have known best about this or that part of my life? Where are the places that I need to bow low before him in repentance, even this morning? 
And let's be reminded as we close that that is exactly what the gospel sets us free to do. I know that I continue to stumble. He has told me that. I don't have to be surprised to find that out. But God's grace has been granted to me in Christ so that as he reveals places of unbelief, places of improper valuing of my Lord, I can simply bring them into the light and joyfully ask him for the power to change. There's an awful lot that can be accomplished from a posture of humble gratitude before our gracious Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are always humbled before your word when you choose to attend it by the work of your spirit. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be mightily at work in your people this morning to cause us more and more all the time to tremble before your word, to hold it as precious in our eyes, to believe it every time that it says anything, to be settled in our mind, this is the standard that you have given us. This is the truth. And Father, we thank you in a special way this morning for the content of the testimony concerning your son. Thank you that we can say and hear and rejoice that sinners, though we continue to be, you have made a way for sinners to be made right before you because you've taken the penalty of our sins and you have borne it yourself in the person of your son. He came joyfully to lay down his life for his friends. We thank you for him this morning, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.